One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the grains, heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And also he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time they went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and said, and deeply distressed, at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually want to start this morning by taking a look at the last verse in that passage that was just read to you. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 6 it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We've heard that many times probably and we understand the resistance that Jesus faced, especially from religious leaders. And, and we kind of read over that sometimes without really thinking about what's being said there. Look at what Jesus has just done pretty early in his ministry. And something about his words and his actions were so threatening to this group of people. They just didn't want to silence him. They didn't want to just debate with him. They wanted to kill him. And what's even more amazing about that sentence is the fact that the Herodians and the Pharisees came together to do it. This is a group you would never expect to collaborate on anything. The Herodians in some ways were sort of the ultimate of the secular. They were the people that had a lot of wealth and influence. They were the people that rallied around Herod Antipas, who was the ruler over Galilee and Perea. Um, they were the people that in some ways probably benefited from Roman rule in Israel. Um, they were probably a pretty immoral group, irreligious group like Herod. Um, you have that group of people. And then you've got the Pharisees, sort of in that day the ultimate in the religious. The people that in many ways were respected even by those who didn't share their beliefs. They were the people who were incredible students of the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament law. They knew the scriptures very, very well. They prided themselves on that. They wanted to be very, very careful to be obedient to the Old Testament laws to the point that they just had these very complex systems of behavior to make sure that they went above and beyond to be obedient. Um, these were people that were in many ways known as the religious leaders of the common man, uh, very influential among the peasant masses. Again, very different groups. This is kind of like, you know, put in modern day terms, this is trying to imagine IU basketball and Kentucky basketball getting together and forming a coalition. Or from my point of view, this is like Michigan and Ohio State getting together and forming a football coalition. You just don't imagine those things. This was so far beyond that. 
These are not groups you picture ever getting together on anything. Yet the one thing they shared was they were so threatened by this Jesus that they're willing to come together, collaborate together to see him put to death. So what about him was so threatening? What about, what has he been doing and saying that would bring him to that point so quickly? Well, Mark tells us quick, five quick stories about Jesus right before this. He tells us about five events in the life of Jesus. And he tells them kind of rapid-fire fashion, and we're going to go through them in sort of the same way. Real quick, try and hit all five. They start in chapter 2 and verse 1. So here's the things that led up to this decision. First, a man is brought to Jesus who is paralyzed by some of his friends. And Jesus heals this man, restores his body. But in doing so, he states these words, Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are around and they hear this, they're observing it. And the Pharisees begin to think, this is blasphemous. They knew the scriptures well. They knew that forgiveness of sins was the exclusive domain of God. Who in the world is he saying he is? And, and so they're thinking these thoughts, and Jesus actually knows their thoughts, reads their minds, hears their thoughts, and he responds to it. He says these words, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take your mat, and walk? Which is an interesting statement. You know, you're, you're wondering why I said that, but did you happen to notice this man actually picked up his mat and walked? Did you see what I actually did here? And you're concerned about that statement. But he goes on to tell him why he said that. There was a reason for it. It wasn't accidental. He said, I said it that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a huge sentence I think he just spoke to them. He said a couple of things there. First of all, again, he said what they are worried about. He is saying, I absolutely said that so that you might know that I have authority to forgive sins on earth. That exclusive domain of God belongs to me. But secondly, he uses this title to describe himself, Son of Man. The, word there, the term there really just means human being, but Jesus uses it as a title. And I think, again, these people who knew the scriptures well, who understood them well, knew what he was saying. They would have known that he's referring back to the words of the prophet Daniel and what he said. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel said these words, Therefore, before me was one like a son of man. There was one who was like a human being, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is identifying himself as that person, that one that they've been waiting for, praying for, working for that day that he would come. But they had very clear expectations about what that person would be. This would be a human being, a man who would come, and Jesus was, but not God. That's not what we're looking for, and that's not what we're expecting. And people will often say, you know, the Pharisees, they were looking for this political leader, this military leader, and Jesus just didn't look like that, this simple carpenter. He wasn't what they expected in a Messiah. And I don't know. I don't know that that's fully true because these people who knew the Scriptures well, I'm sure they understood many times God would raise somebody who was the last person you would expect to raise him up and lead his people. But they weren't expecting someone to claim to be God. That was far outside anything they were looking for or expecting. Second story. Um, in this story, 
Jesus is having dinner with this group of people, tax collectors, and, a, and the rest are just identified as sinners. Um, pretty unsavory group that he's sitting down to dinner with. Now you have to understand, again, some things about the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, the most important thing was staying ritually clean, avoiding that which would make them unpure before God. And, and they very carefully wanted to follow the, the Old Testament dietary laws. And again, as they did with most things, they were so careful about it that they would go well beyond what Scripture said just to make sure we don't come in any way near violating it. And they had this complex system of behaviors in place to make sure we don't violate those laws. And they pressured and taught others to follow them also and kind of wore the fact they did it like a badge before everybody. We want to make sure we don't violate those in any way. So then to see Jesus sitting with this group of people and associating with them why would you if, you, if you truly are a religious leader, why would you even consider doing that? But more than that, you sat down and ate with them. That is the last thing that we would ever consider doing. The last thing that we would do. That, that would make us unclean. We would never consider doing that. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus' response to them is he, this time he doesn't have to hear their thoughts. They're speaking it. And this time he says to them, it's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. Again, think about it. What is Jesus saying with that sentence? What do you expect the Messiah to come and do? And, and Jesus later talks about the fact, in many ways, there were people who wanted to clean up the outside, get all the behaviors right, get everything in the right position, that God might come and that God might restore Israel to this place of prominence and the worship of Yahweh might be center stage. That's what we want to see happen again. And here's one who's come and said, but I'm that Messiah, but I've come to heal the sick, and the sick that I'm with are those who are sinners. I've come to do something that you haven't expected and something you don't imagine. I've come to save in a way you're not looking to be saved. Third story. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. They're all fasting. And this time other people come to Jesus and say, why is it, Jesus, that you and your disciples don't fast like they do? Again, the Pharisees, the only, the only fast that was required by the law was a fast on the Day of Atonement. doesn't mean they were wrong to fast other days. It was still a good thing to do. But the only required one was an all-day fast on the Day of Atonement. Well, the Pharisees fasted every Tuesday and Thursday. That was their practice. Again, let's make sure we cover our bases, get it right. We do it every Tuesday and Thursday. And they asked Jesus, why is it that you don't do that? Why don't you consider fasting that important? And Jesus, again, he doesn't say anything negative about fasting. He doesn't put it down or say it's a wrong thing to do. But instead, Jesus tells these three quick little parables, three little stories, to help them understand why, why he doesn't choose to do that. The first, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? So again, you have to understand the tradition of that day. Um, we celebrate weddings. So that one yesterday and celebrated. Be it one this afternoon and celebrate. We celebrate weddings. We don't do near like they did. They celebrated for like seven days. That was their common practice. Seven days of celebration. The whole town joined in. This was a big deal when we had a wedding. And it was common practice when they celebrated um, that even the rabbis would set aside fasting for that time because this wasn't a time to be somber. This was a time to focus on the bride and the bridegroom, to give them our attention and to celebrate this remarkable event in their life. Everyone understood that and agreed with that. That's where the attention should go. So what's Jesus saying to them? Again, he's not saying there's something wrong with fasting. He's saying, do you understand who's with you? Do you understand who you're in the presence of? This is a time to put your attention on me and to celebrate me being with you. This is not a time to worry about fasting. 
see me, understand who I am. I'm much more than anything you expected. But beyond that, I think Jesus is also saying something else. Because in the Old Testament, Israel's husband and lover was not the Messiah. Israel's husband and lover was God himself. Jesus is presenting himself as the bridegroom. I think he's saying something about who he is to them, something they weren't expecting or ready to hear. He goes on to say two more little stories. He says, you know, you can't take a new piece of cloth and attach it to an old garment because when that cloth shrinks, it'll pull away from the old garment that's already been shrunk and it'll tear away. You can't take new wine and put it in an old wineskin because when it ferments, it'll expand and it'll, it'll burst that old wineskin that's lost its pliability. You can't, you can't make me conform to your old expectations. You can't, you can't make me come into what you've expected and what you've planned for and the beliefs that you've put in place and expect me to fit in it. Instead, you need to change your expectations to fit the one who stands before you. Do you see who's before you? The Messiah, but, but more than you expected as a Messiah, God himself stands before you. Story goes on. Uh, the two that you heard read this morning, the first story is the one of the disciples are traveling through a field and they begin to pick grain. And again, it wasn't illegal to, to pick grain. According to Jewish law, you could do that. You couldn't pull out a sickle and start cutting down someone else's field, but you could pick a handful of grain and eat it if you were in need. So that's not what they're complaining about. What they're complaining about is he was doing it on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, his disciples are walking through this field and they're taking something to eat and they're saying, you're harvesting on the Sabbath, you're working on the Sabbath. Probably were even upset by the fact they were traveling because there were very clear limits they had about how far you could travel on the Sabbath. Saying you're violating the Sabbath. And you have to understand how serious they were about Sabbath observance. This was central to their identity as the people of God, being a set-apart people for God. That observance of the Sabbath, they thought, was one of the most important things that they did. They had 39 classes of work that they had identified that they said were outside the work that you were allowed to do on the Sabbath. They had things like you couldn't show, sew one more, more than one stitch. You couldn't write more than one letter. If someone was dying, you could intervene to save their life, but you couldn't, you couldn't set a dislocated foot or a dislocated hand. Had to wait till the next day to do those because this was work that you can't do. And they were very careful to define every detail of what was outside the realm of acceptable work. And again, this time, Jesus, instead of just saying it's wrong to observe the Sabbath or that they've got, you know, that they're doing something wrong by caring about that, instead he tells them a story, a story from 1 Samuel um, chapter 21. It's a story where David and his men are fleeing from King Saul. King Saul's after him. And they're hungry, they're starving, and they eat the bread that is actually consecrated to the priest, the consecrated bread that only the priest could lawfully eat. And they chose to eat that because of their hunger. And I think he's saying this to them because he knows what the Pharisees think about that story. They believe that was acceptable behavior. Acceptable behavior because they knew David was God's anointed who was on a mission that was anointed by God. So in this case, this exception was acceptable because of who he was and what he was doing. So again, what's Jesus saying about himself? Do you know who stands before you? Are you really seeing me? You think that was acceptable for David, and you don't think it's acceptable for me. It's kind of like me, and you guys would understand what a good illustration this is if you ever saw me play basketball. It's kind of like me getting a chance to talk to Michael Jordan 
and I want to instruct him in proper form for shooting a jump shot. That's kind of like them standing before Jesus and instructing him in proper Sabbath behavior. Do you see who I am, the one who stands before you? The Lord even of the Sabbath, the source of the Sabbath and of the law. And then you're instructing me about appropriate observation and when it's proper to set it aside and when it's not. Do you see who stands before you? And we think, well, they just didn't get it. They were just confused. But again, understand that that he really has been living before them something different and something unique. Not just in his words, but in his life and his teaching. Everything before them is pointed to this is some man who's beyond anything you've ever imagined before. One of the things that stood out to me as I was reading through all these stories about the um, Pharisees, they were people, I think, again, wanted to make sure they were doing it right, and they were so focused upon doing it right that they got lost in the details. They got lost in doing it right, and they kind of lost sight of the bigger story. And we do that a lot of times, don't we? We get caught up in the doing it right, and the doing it right becomes the end. And we kind of forget the relational context that's in, the whole purpose of it, why we do it. And you see that in the Pharisees. So final story, see it again. In this case, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and in the synagogue, it's on the Sabbath again, there's a man who has a, a hand that's described as a shriveled hand. It's deformed in some way. Um, and Jesus, this time, he doesn't wait for their questions. Their questions kind of becoming a little more aggressive. He doesn't wait for them to challenge him. He actually, he provokes it. He actually moves this man to center stage before them in the synagogue. They're waiting to see, is he going to heal him? And he wants to make sure they see him do it right before them. Stands the man before him. And when he stands before him, he says this, these words to them, ask this question. Which is lawful, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they're silent. They have no answer. Again, I think he's drawing their attention back to say, now think about it. What is the purpose of the law? Have you lost sight of this? In fact, you know later how Jesus sums up the law when he's asked to sum it up. These words that we all know well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Many of you have heard me say many times, I think we get in trouble when we, when we take morality, and we take these moral behaviors, and we remove them from a context of relationship. When they don't have a face in front of them. Morality in Scripture always has a face in front of it. It's always the face of God, or it's the face of another. There's always something relational about those choices. They seem to have lost sight of that. It's just about obeying the behavior. And later we'll hear from Jesus in some ways that was because they loved that, that badge of piety, that badge of being the ones who really followed the rules the best. Jesus' response in this case was to get angry with them. Again, it's easy for us to think, well, they just didn't get it. They were just confused. They just didn't see. But Jesus' response wasn't, oh, I feel bad for you guys don't understand. I want to help you understand. He was literally angry at them. He was distressed with their response. Remember who stood before them in this moment. So they have a man standing before them with his hand that is deformed in some way that he has probably suffered his whole life with. has probably paid a heavy price for. And they have standing before him this man, Jesus, who they have observed closely. They've followed. They're watching his every move. Think about who he is. He's the one who heals the sick. He's the one who restores the disabled. He's the one who drives out demons. He's the one that others said he taught with an authority they've never heard before. He's not the guy who has to quote others. You can tell he's the source of that truth. 
a different kind of authority. He's a man who lives before them wisdom. He, he personifies wisdom before them. This is a man who never sins. Never. Imagine this man you've been watching closely and you can find no sin in him. This is the man who stands before him. This man with this need and this man with the power to heal him who is this unbelievable, unique person that we've never met or seen before. And what do they see? You violated Sabbath law. That's all they see. His response is anger, and he says that the problem is, again, not just they don't get it. The problem is they have a stubborn heart. Stubborn. For some reason, this is a position they're holding on to. This is a position they don't want to change. And you know how it is, again, a lot of times. Sometimes I don't want to change position, not because there's no questions about it or I don't have, you know, wonder about things. I want things to stay the way they are. I figured it out this way. I know how to live this way. I've got a plan. Don't mess with it. Just let me live in my ignorance because it's, it's safer. I feel content there. Jesus says their problem is a stubborn heart. They hold on to it. They don't want to hear. They don't want to see. He's begging them to see with his behavior and his words. Again, one of the things I love about Jesus is the way he teaches. He is constantly trying to get them to see, get them to seek. And yet they absolutely refuse to. They want to be where they are. They're ready to see a Messiah. Just not that Messiah. They want to be saved. Just not in the way he wants to save. So Mark, I think, throughout these stories, he's driving home one point. Jesus is this one, the Son of Man. He is the one who comes in power and authority and sovereign glory. He is that one. But he's bigger and more than you were looking for, than you ever expected, that you ever understood. There's much more to him, who he is, what he's going to do, what he's about than you ever thought possible. So I want to drive home three points of application with you at the end of this story. And a lot of times the application, we think about what we're supposed to do. Well, today I really want to think more about who is Jesus is the application. I want, you to, I want you to leave with thought about, from this story, what do I walk away with about who is Jesus? Because I think if we, if we kind of think about that more and own that more, it will change all our behaviors. We will choose differently if we get our focus on him and remember who he is. So three little phrases I just want to drive home. One is Jesus confounds. Second is Jesus disrupts. Third is Jesus elevates. So Jesus confounds. And when I look in the dictionary, here's what it says the word confounds means. Causing surprise or confusion in someone, especially by acting against their expectations. If you think you have Jesus all figured out, you've put him in your Jesus box and you got it, you got it now. You went to Sunday school as a kid, you've read and studied, and you know who Jesus is and you're done. Look again. I'll bet you he's more than you know. I'll bet you he's beyond anything you've expected. I'll bet you he will blow apart your assumptions if you look closely. There's always more to know and always more to learn. And Jesus intentionally seems to stir curiosity and questions in those who are before him again and again and again. Always challenging those things that they've settled on, those ways that they try to define him instead of seek to know him. Our job is to seek to know, to continue. It doesn't mean that we don't find things that we own as true, but always with a sense of there's more to know, more to learn. Be careful about defining who he is and being done with him. The thing that often stands out with me about Jesus, again, is, is the way he teaches. Now, one of the things I love about him, if I have a right answer, and I know, I, you know you're in a discussion in a class, and you go, I got it, I got the answer. I cannot wait to put my hand up and use my answer when I'm sure it's right. 
I love being the right guy, you know? doesn't happen very often, but when I can, I'm excited about it. What I love about Jesus as a teacher, he often withholds the right answer until they're asking the questions. He, he is a master of getting them to be curious, to ask the questions, to realize there's something more they need to know. And even then, I think he gives them enough of an answer that they need to seek for more. Master of that. He wants us to be seekers, not just people who wrap them up and are done with them and move on. My problem is uncomfortable for me not to know. I like things settled, especially important things. I want them to be clear and done so that I can make a plan and go work my plan. Again, I don't think Jesus fits that paradigm very well. Uh, when I was thinking about this, I thought about the many times that I sit with young couples who are preparing to get married and counsel with them. One of the things that any of you have been through that with me probably will recognize is one of the statements I often make is, if I could, I would love to tattoo the word curious across both of your foreheads. Might be kind of an odd way to live life, but I would love to have that word across your forehead because I think your marriage would be better for it. I think your marriage would be better if, if for the rest of your life you would realize you don't fully know this person. There's more to learn and more to understand. If you lived life with that kind of curiosity, always in your marriage, I'll bet your marriage will grow in intimacy and depth because there is always more to know. How quickly, though, do we get to the point we think we have the other kind of figured out? You know, and all the guys are going, I've never figured my wife out. But, you know, you kind of get to the point you think you got the main stuff. You think you got the stuff you need to kind of manage the relationship. I know what they, what they want from me. I know what's going to upset them. We can kind of figure it out and get along. And pretty quickly, you learn a lot, don't you? You learn where the boundaries are. You learn what works and what doesn't work. And you kind of got it figured out. And too often we think we've figured out enough, we're done, now let's move on to the other stuff that needs our energy. And for the rest of our marriage, I will relate to that person that I've defined you to be. And our marriage never grows beyond that point. How crazy that is when you think about it. I have lived with me for 54 years. And I continually don't get me. I continually am surprised by choices I make, things I think. I'm like, what in the world were you thinking? Why did you do that? I don't get me a lot. I have pretty intimate access to my thoughts and choices, and I still don't get me. How crazy to think that I fully know my wife. How crazy to think that I am ever done with learning who she is. There's more to know. There's more to understand. And the more I know and understand, the better I can love, the better ways I can respond, and the better ways I can support and come alongside her. Intimacy slows or even stops when we think we got the other all figured out. I think the same thing happens with Jesus. And Jesus is a master at not letting us know, think that we have them all figured out. Because the truth is we never do. We never even come close to it. Second, Jesus disrupts. Scripture defines, I mean, dictionary defines the word disrupt as interferes with the normal arrangement or functioning of something. One of the things that Mark drives home again and again is that ultimate authority and power rests with Jesus. And he does those things with the exclusive domain of God. The shared character, the shared role with Jesus, I mean with God, this unique union. That he, he's presenting that again and again. He's much more than you thought, which means Jesus is not some supplement that you add to your life and enhance it. That's not how he's being presented at all. But that's how a lot of us approach Jesus, isn't it? We approach him as somebody, we say, you know, I've got life kind of figured out, I know where I'm going. Jesus seems like he would be a great addition to it. And, and help me get where I want to go. Like the Pharisees, I want to be saved. I just want to be saved in certain areas. 
Don't save me too much. Don't disrupt my life too much. Tweak it a little. Don't disrupt it. Mark uses the term follow 21 times in his gospel. Again, the, the response he's presenting, when you see Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, when you understand anything about Jesus, the right response is to follow. It's not to somehow make him conform to my life. It's to follow, to go where he leads me to go. If your life is unaffected by your encounter with Jesus, if you've met Jesus and nothing has changed, or you've just tweaked a few things, I'd say stop and look again. Are you sure you've seen him? Are you sure you know who he is? Have really encountered him? Stop and look again. Because if we encounter Jesus, things should change. It ought to be a disruption to the way we're going. Following him means leaving where we've been going. Things are different. Third, Jesus elevates. Scripture defines the word elevates as to raise or lift something up to a higher position. Again, as I read these stories, one of the things that strikes me again and again is Jesus has authority and power beyond anything we've imagined. And how does he use it again and again? To lift himself up? Like the Pharisees did? Is that how he used it? This incredible power and authority, how does he use it? To lift up others around him, to heal, to restore, to treat with dignity, to, to rescue, to love. How does he use his power and authority again and again? I, I gotta admit, I've often had a problem with authority. I, I don't like being told what to do. Now, many of you may be surprised by that. Some of you probably aren't at all. Um, but especially as a teenager, young adult, I got in a lot of trouble because I just did not like people telling me what to do. Now, I'd like to think I got past it, really not got past it that well. I was just thinking the other day, Laura and I have talked many times about how, you know, I, I hate working on my yard. We don't need a house that big. We want to downsize. And many times we talk about getting a condo. You know, that'd be nice. I'd like to have a condo, someone else take care of my yard. You know, I, I just can't quite bring myself to do it because someone else gets to tell me what to do a lot more than they do now. I don't like people telling me what to do. I like to be master in my own domain. I like to be in control and boss of me. I don't want to give up any of that power. And the reason I don't want to is because I tend sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I think of authority and power in the hands of others as being something threatening. If they have it, they're going to use it in some way that's going to make me smaller, diminish me. If they have it, they're going to want to control and use me for their own selfish purposes. So I need to fight to keep it in my hands. But I forget how many times authority in the hands of others is something that's a blessing and a relief to me. I think about times when somebody I love has been sick. And who do, I, who do I run to? Who do I want to find? Someone who has authority and power in the medical realm. I want to find those people. I want to know them. I want all the help I can possibly get from them. I'm glad you have it because I don't have it. Please step in and help me. When, I'm, when my safety is being violated, my rights being violated in some time, who do I run to? I want to go to someone who has authority and power in the legal realm. In fact, my computer isn't functioning. I want someone who has authority and power in the technological realm. I don't mind authority and power in the hands of others many, many times if I believe that somehow they will use it for me, um, that they will use it in some way that doesn't make me smaller or harm me, but even lifts me up, cares for me, and meets my needs. Look at the one whose hands power and authority is in before these Pharisees. Look at the man who stands before them, one who lives humbly and simply, one who washes his disciples' feet, one who steps into the lepers and touches and heals and cares for them. One who sits with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and treats them with dignity and love. 
think of the one who stood before them. Is he a threat that he's going to take and use that authority and power? If you let go of it, he's going to take it and use it in a way that harms you. You sure you see him? Look at him. Pay attention to who's in front of you. Richard Foster says, the sin of power is the yearning to be more than we were created to be. It's the danger of power. We are given authority and power. We are not helpless people. God graciously gives us authority and power. We all have, some of you may not think you have any, you all do. You all have areas where you have influence, where you have power. You can make a difference. You change things. And that's good. I think sometimes we get in trouble because we deny that. We call ourselves helpless when we're not. He has given us authority and power. But we are also always dependent upon him. It's a gift from him. Ultimately, he's the one whose hands all authority and power is in. If we have it, it really is just a gift from him in some ways on loan from him. And our goal is to use it in a way that furthers his purposes and follows, joins what he's doing. We don't need more. Most of the time, we just need to stop and look at what we have. Are you grateful for what you have? Have you considered how to best use it in a way that honestly does join him? Joins that ultimate power, serves his purposes, and uses it the way he would use it. Not wrong to have authority and power, but why is it we always grab for more and think somehow if I get more, I'll make things better? It's crazy, isn't it? I really can't handle what I have, and I always want more. I, I don't always do well with what I have, and somehow I always want more. Believe that somehow my life will be better if more and more is in my hands. Have you looked at the one who stands in front of you? Why in the world would you want to take it out of your ha- his hands and put it in yours? It's one of the stories I, you've, many of you have heard me mention often, but is that when I look back at Adam and Eve, the thing that stands out to me was the fact that their grab for power, the reason they rebelled against God, had nothing to do with getting what they didn't already have. Why did Eve eat of that fruit? Scripture tells us because it was good for food, desirable to the eye, and good for gaining wisdom. Was she lacking any of those things at that moment? She had all the food she needed. She lived in a place of incredible beauty. She had access to God and his wisdom. Was she gaining anything she didn't already have? Why did they make that choice? Because they somehow believed if it was in their hands, under their control, they would be better served. How did it work out for them? We're not much different, are we? I think if the Pharisees really saw who stood before them, if they would have let go of those places they dug their heels in, those things they believed were somehow going to work for their life, and they saw who stood before them, I think like the Apostle Paul, they would have said, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. One practical suggestion I want to leave you with. Um, One practical thing to do. If you want to kind of keep things in right perspective, fight this tendency we have to somehow believe if things are in our hands and our control, we'll be better off. And, And remember who it is we serve, who it is who has ultimate power, ultimate authority, and make sure that we keep it in his hands. Then I would say start every day with a, with a word of prayer. Every morning. Start it off with prayer. And start off your prayer every morning with these words that Jesus instructed us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Start off every day putting things in right perspective and then move from there. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that we have a God who is all-powerful, a God who is beyond anything we've imagined, but we also serve a God who has love beyond anything we've imagined, a God who is good towards us, a God who seeks to redeem and restore, to elevate. Father, I pray that we would more and more become your followers, that we would more and more see who Jesus is, let go and follow. In your blessed name, amen.